pastors here. Unlike uh, Lisa, I, I'm not carrying a child. This is just a uh, lack of self-control. Uh, so... What, uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 7 this morning. Uh, we won't have the verses from John 7 on the screen encouraging us to be in our Bibles. There are copies out in a bookshelf on the left in the foyer if you want to grab one and follow along with us as we're journeying through this gospel together. Uh, before I was ever a full-time pastor here at the church, I was a summer intern. I would work with the young adults and our youth group and uh, got pigeonholed as the young, energetic, loud, talkative one. Glad those days are in the rear view. And uh, just kind of putting together crazy games with Mountain Dew and bananas and often ending in, in vomiting. Um, I would attend weekly staff meetings and talk about my uh, plans, my ideas uh, for, for activities. And I would, I would share these uh, with, with our staff. Many of them were rejected. Uh, I, one of them was uh, actually a hitchhiking competition to Wasilla. Um, easier to ask Forgiveness and permission on that one. And then we also pulled off uh, the Hillbilly Olympics. Uh, this is an actual thing we did in the church. Uh, and whenever I would share, and I'm going to pull, those are, I'm going to take the pictures of me without a shirt off, off the screen after a moment. There, you get it? Yeah, we actually, that was. Um, whenever I would share one of my ideas or plans uh, with the staff and look for feedback, our lead pastor at the time, Pastor Dan, would always ask me the same question. Well, what is the goal of your event, Justin? Like, what's the purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? And I was always like, I don't know. I just thought it would be fun. Back off, Pastor Dan, right? But I found, begrudgingly, that, that Pastor Dan was right. And, and the goal of my event determined how I planned it, how I organized it, where all of it was, was going. And as a, a church event, this should just be more, be, should be more than just simply having fun. If I was to jump into my, my car and, uh, there it is. If I was to jump into my car and start driving, I, I need to know the destination, right? If I don't, how do I know where to go? How do I know what, what path, what road to take, when to turn, and, and where to go? St Stephen Covey said we need to begin with the end in mind. We begin with the end in mind. Or, or I would say it this way, knowing our goal determines our way. Knowing our goal, where our destination is, is going to determine the path that we, that we take. So what is the goal of our lives as believers? We find in God's word, it's all wrapped up in this idea of discipleship to or apprenticeship under Jesus. So what's the goal of a disciple of Jesus? And I like the way that John Mark Comer uh, said this, three things. We are to be with Jesus, we are to become like Jesus, and we are to do what Jesus did. To be with him, to become like him, and to do as he did. So the question is, well, who is Jesus? And what did he do? What is his way? And what good news, literally, that we have the Gospels? That we can look in these four Gospels and see Jesus. And as we study the book of John together, this Gospel, we need to ask these questions. As we examine the life of Jesus, we need to look at how we can emulate the way of Jesus in our own lives. And so I want to do this this morning as we gather together as his body to be with Jesus here. Let, let's look at in this gospel this morning, who is Jesus so that we can become like him? And what did he do so that we can do those same things? I want us to look at John 7 and examine this very question. How do we follow the way of Jesus versus the way of the world? 
And when I say world, I mean the sinful patterns of humanity apart from their God, the world, the sinful patterns that we set. And in this chapter, I, wanna, I see four contrasts between the way of Jesus and the way of the world and how we can walk in his way. So number one, the way of the world tries to manipulate God. The way of Jesus waits on his father's timing. So start with me, John 7. I actually want to start with verse 2. It says, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. This chapter is completely structured around this festival. Your translations, sometimes they're called the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. It's referring to the, to the same thing. Uh, if you can look in Leviticus chapter 23 that unpacks what this was to look like for the people. This was one of three annual festivals that the Jewish people would celebrate uh, they would all, where they would travel to Jerusalem for that, for that celebration. Uh, Passover, which was the first one, was sometime in March or April. Then 50 days later, there was the celebration of Pentecost, and then this festival of shelters in September or October. It was according to the lunar calendar, so kind of like our Easter, it would shift each year on the exact dates. Uh, now, if you were with us last week, John 6 was during the Passover. So we're about six months fast-forwarded fast here in John chapter 7. The festival of shelters was a week-long feast, yes please, uh, where they would celebrate harvest. This was the fall time, harvest of some of their crops. And they were looking back and remembering God's faithfulness to them in their origin story as a people. As they were traveling in the wilderness, and, and they were uh, intense, basically. These shelters, or that's why they would, this week, they would construct these booths or shelters to live in, to remember that time when they were living in them in the desert. Now, in John chapter 7, we basically have an outline structured around this festival week. The first 10 verses are before Jesus goes to the festival. Then we see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the chapter culminates on the last day of that festival. So let's, let's dive into this. Uh, verse 3, we're going to see Jesus talking with his physical brothers. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. So that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And there's a footnote in, chapter, in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, what are his brothers driving at here? Well, the, the parentheses help us see their, their motives. They don't, they don't believe who Jesus claims to be. And these are his brothers. I mean, think about that. They've lived with Jesus for 30 years, and they do not believe that he is the Messiah. His words are so true. A prophet has no honor even in his own home, let alone hometown. And I think their, their tone here is one that's sarcastic and challenging. They're saying, you think you're the Messiah? Then go to all your fancy followers and prove it. Show off to the world, Mr. Chosen One. As an oldest child, I get it. They're always resentful. They're jealous of you being the favorite, right? So... Now, verses 6 through 10, look at Jesus' response. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. Your time, however, is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now look at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretively. Now, you, you might be like me the first time reading it and go, hold the phone. 
did Jesus just lie? Because if you notice, in, in verse 8, he, he says, I am not going up to this festival. And then two verses later, he goes to the festival. Now, wait a second. Which one is it? Often we find the truth in the tension. The truth is in the tension here. So let's press in on that tension. No, notice in verse 8, what he says is, I'm not going up to this festival. Now, some translations, and maybe even your footnote uh, in your translation says, yet, they added, yet, I'm not going up to this festival yet. Now, that would make it simpler, because he was just simply saying, yet, but he would go. Um, that's probably not the, the best uh, and definitive translation. It does seem like the Greek present tense would allow for, I am not now going, which could imply, but, but I, I could or might go later. I liked what D.A. Carson said about this. That he said, his not, when he said, I'm not going, to his brothers, it turns down his brother's request. It does not promise that he will not go to the feast when the father sanctions the trip. Because my father has not told me to go, so I'm not going at this time. He is showing I am not regulated by my earthly brothers, but by my heavenly father. We see a similar thing when Mary tells him to, to do something about the, the water wine situation in the wedding, right? He's not to be manipulated. Now, we know about our God and about Jesus as the second person of that trinity, that, that he is not a sinner in, in his speech and in his deceit. First Peter, which is riffing on Isaiah 53, says he, referring to Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So our God, Jesus Christ, never sinned and never sinned in deceiving another. So what is going on? Well, we see there is a, there's, there is, we live in a complicated world, right? Well, there's nuance in how to walk wisdom principles out. If you were with us in our Exodus series, we talked about the midwives, the Hebrew midwives who were told by Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew male babies when they were born. And Pharaoh goes, what's going on? And they're like, and we said, man, they're just popping them out like Pez dispensers and we can't keep up with them, right? Now, was that a lie? Well, it's complicated, right? We know their motive was not sinful deceit. It was in love. They were protecting life. And we see here with Jesus, it's a motive issue. That he's not sinfully deceiving his brothers. He is unwilling to meet their unsanctioned demands on his life. But notice here, Jesus, is, his, his explanation involves timing. Look back up at verse 8. I'm not going up to the festival. Why? Because my time has not yet fully come. This was a timing issue. The word time that he uses here is the Greek word for kairos, or the Greek word kairos, which means the, the proper time. Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about there's a time for everything. And here we see Jesus, there's a time to go to the festival, and there's a time to tell your brothers, what's up? And that's what he's doing right here. And I love his little dig. Look at verse 6. He says, my time has not arrived, but your time is always at hand. I think he's lobbing a sarcastic volley back to them going, I wait for my father, you never wait on the father, so you can go whenever you want to go. This was a first century burn. The way of the world is to try to manipulate God. But brothers and sisters, we worship a God that cannot be manipulated. And that is a good thing. We, we as, the, as the newsboys once sang, I'm not following a God I can lead around. Which always sounds cooler in the Australian accent, right? We, we don't follow a God that we lead. That's not a God worth following, right? We, we follow Jesus. He doesn't follow us. And that's a good thing because I'm a fool. I don't know the goal and I don't know how to get to that destination. Jesus does. And his way is good and it's light and it's life. 
So ask our own hearts this morning, where have you been trying to manipulate God? Sometimes that manipulation looks like trying to make his timing match our timing. Lucy has a, a bottle warmer uh, that she, uh, we put her, her bottle in to warm. That's why it's a bottle warmer. Um, usually takes about five minutes. And when it's done, when the time, is, when the, time the kairos is right, it beeps three times. Beep, beep, beep. Now, early on, she caught on to this. And so about a minute in, she looked up at, at mommy and went, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> a little manipulator, right? Get behind me. Like, she, she needed to trust her parents' perfect timing. That baby, we know when your bottle's ready, right? And it needs to be warm. It's easier to digest, and you're going to like it better. And then we need to let it cool down so it doesn't burn your little baby tongue, right? Trust our timing. But don't we do this with God? God, I want this thing, and I want it now. Beep, beep, beep. I want this health situation resolved. I, I want this job situation resolved. I want, this, I want it now. Beep, beep, beep. But we have to trust that when God says no, or when he says not yet, it is for our best. Even, and especially, we need to remember that, when it doesn't make sense from our point of view. The way of Jesus was not to manipulate his father. It was to wait on his father's perfect timing. That's faith. But man, isn't that hard? Verse 1, notice this. this, is, this is, look at verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee... Since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the, brother, because the Jews were trying to kill him. So he says, the reason I'm not going down to Judea is because they're trying to kill me. Now that, that sounds reasonable, right? To avoid a place because of an attempted murder on you. Um, but more so, we see Jesus isn't just simply avoiding death, right? This isn't simply a comfort issue, nor is it a fear issue. Because what do we know of our Savior? He would eventually get on a donkey, and he would knowingly go to Jerusalem to die. Just not right then. He was waiting on his father's kairos, on his father's perfect timing. And we would do well to learn and walk in the way of Jesus. The second thing we see is the way of the world hides in the shadows. The way of Jesus is to speak truth in the light. To speak truth in the light. So welcome to the beginning of festival week. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the festival saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So notice here, everybody's murmuring about Jesus. And we're going to see that the rest of the chapter, this, this, this murmuring, this whispering about Jesus' identity persists. And what we see in this chapter is the way of the world is to hide in the shadows. Now, why does the world hide in the shadows? Three things I see about that. The first one here is that the world hates its evil deeds being exposed. Look back up at verse 7. When Jesus said, the, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me. Why? Because I testify about it, specifically that its works are evil. The world didn't want to hear Jesus' message that the world was evil. And, and who can blame them, right? Does anybody here like having their sin exposed? Uh, you just love when, when it's made to the world known, your faults, your, your foolishness, your wickedness. No, our pride hates that. 
And so we hide our sin. We hide in shame and embarrassment. We try to justify ourselves. We try to put our best face forward and keep that smile plastered on our face. Or we accuse others so that we can look good. Because if I'm not so good, I can at least push you down and make me look better than you. But man, Solomon says to that, that is foolishness. Proverbs 12, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but one who hates correction is stupid. The Bible just said stupid, right? I don't know if that justifies it for us, but, but on the contrary, he says the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. They're faithful. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, put people around you in your life who love you enough to tell you the truth, even when it hurts a place where we can confess our sin to each other and be known. Another reason the world loves hiding in the shadows is because it prefers to talk about others, not with or to others. Notice in this passage, everybody's whispering about Jesus, but no one is asking the questions directly to Jesus. Now, right in this moment, he hasn't showed up yet, but we're going to see this heart pattern persist. And even here, it says no one's talking about it publicly because of fear. Now, one of the things we're going to see later, and we won't, we won't read the verses, but they, start, they, they assume that he's from Galilee. And they say, wait a second, the, the, prophet, the prophecies about the Messiah say he's from Bethlehem, not up in Galilee. Now, if they would have asked Jesus, what do we know as the readers? Jesus, yes, was raised in Nazareth in Galilee, but he was born where? He was born, born, born in Bethlehem. And they just asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, where are you actually from? Could have cleared it up. But we do this all the time. We gossip and we slander and we make assumptions. And you know what they say about assumptions, and I cannot say it in church, right? We, why do we do this? Why do we gossip about? Why do we slander about? Why do we make assumptions about instead of talking to? Well, I think a couple of motives in our, in our wicked hearts. The first one's cowardice. Man, it takes boldness to look someone in the eye and ask them the hard question. It takes boldness to look someone in the eye and say the hard thing. And we're afraid. The second thing is, is it's laziness, right? It's way easier to build a straw man argument for that person, to argue what you think they would argue, instead of actually doing the more complicated, nuanced thing and talking to them and having dialogue, asking questions with that person. And we actually do this with our relationship with Jesus as well. It's easier to talk about Jesus than to actually engage with Jesus. It's easier to debate theology and talk about the Bible and even go to church, but are, are we in an actual relationship with Jesus? Am I abiding in the vine or am I just bragging about it? We hide because we'd rather talk about than with. And finally, we see the world is motivated by fear. It hides in the shadows because it's motivated by the fear of man. Look at verse 13. Still nobody was talking publicly about him. Why? For fear of the Jews. Now, this is a, this is a phrase that's used often in the Gospels. And, and th this, this was a reason that they stayed private. Which is interesting because Jesus at times in this chapter stays private as well. But it's for very different motives. They, the rulers at this time, remember we saw starting in, in, in this section in John 5, the rulers become hostile toward Jesus, the Jewish rulers. They're, they're trying to arrest him and even kill him. And so the crowds, the people are afraid of excommunication. That if they speak against their rulers, they could get kicked out of the synagogue. They could get shunned publicly. And they lived in an honor-shame culture. 
a collectivist culture that their deepest fear and their deepest desire was to be accepted by the group. C.S. Lewis has has an awesome article called The Inner Ring. And in this uh, article, he says this, At all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, some inner group, and the terror of being left outside. Guys, this fuels so much of our life, and we don't even realize it. We'll do anything to stay in whatever desired in-crowd we want to be a part of. And that drives us to all sorts of foolishness and sin. You know, it's easy to talk about Jesus when we're in our church small group. Or like right now, it's a popular thing, right? The in-group here is to talk about Jesus. But what about when I'm at work? What about when I'm talking to my neighbor? What about, what about when I'm in a situation where that's not the popular thing? Like, I struggle with that. Jesus shows us his ways to not hide in the shadows, but it's to speak the truth in the light, even when it costs him. In verse 7, he said again, he said, the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Jesus came to this earth and he said hard things to people about themselves and their sin. And we ask ourselves, am I walking in the way of Jesus? And maybe there's a hard truth this week that you need to speak to somebody. Maybe that means confessing a sin out loud to another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe that means confronting, speaking a hard word in gentleness, in humility, but speaking it to a brother or sister. The third thing I see here in a contrast is the way the world is governed by its own will, whereas the way of Jesus is governed by the Father's will. His own will versus the Father's will. Uh, Look at verse 14. We're in the middle of the week now. When the festival was already half over... Jesus went into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anybody wants to do his will, the father's will, that is, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. And man, I just can't get past verse 17. This has been into me. He says, someone's going to know that I am teaching from God, they first must want to do God's will. It's only those, it's what he says here in verse 17, only those who want to do God's will will know if I came from the Father and am sent here to do his will. And what is he implying? That this crowd does not. They rejected Jesus' claims. They didn't obey him. Why? Because they didn't want to obey the Father. And why would that be? Well, this sends us back, whoa, that was close. Sends us back to the Garden of Eden. Remember in, in the garden, Adam and Eve are told, don't eat of this tree. And what do they do? They eat of the tree. What's, what's going on there? Well, they didn't obey the word of God because ultimately they didn't trust the heart of God. To trust is to obey. It, if I doubt the Father's heart for me, if I believe the heart of God is not for me, and I think he's holding out on me, then I'm going to eat that fruit. And that's exactly what they did. Think about this, for example, in 2 Corinthians. Paul teaches, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God's heart is for us to be generous givers. Why? Because our God is a generous giver. So why don't I obey this? Why don't I give generously and cheerfully? Because I don't trust my God to provide. And if I don't trust his heart to take care of me, to provide for me, then I'm not going to give generously. I'm going to be stingy. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to keep it. So how do, we, how do we follow the way of Jesus in this? How do we abide by our Father's timing? How do we speak the Father's word even when it costs? How do we seek to only honor and obey the Father? 
We trust his word and we obey it. And they didn't do that. Look at verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law, Jesus tells the people? Yet none of you keeps the law. Case in point, why are you trying to kill me? <laughs> so there was a law, right, in those Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And what are they doing? They're trying to murder him. Now, of course, they think they're justified in that because they believe he's sinning and blaspheming. They, they say, you're claiming to be God and you're not, so we're justified in killing you. But, of course, Jesus was God. He is innocent. But the reason they don't believe that, he just said, is because they don't actually want to do God's will in the first place. Not only are they rejecting Jesus' claim as Messiah, they're actually trying to actively stop him. Look at, skip over to verse 32. We see the leaders in action. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. They're trying to arrest Jesus, literally trying to stop him. And Jesus taught, if you're not for me, you are against me. See, there is no neutrality in our lives. Discipleship is a direction, and we are moving one way or the other. We might say, well, I'm not, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm not trying to be like Jesus as much as I should, but I'm not like, well, I'm not against the guy, right? That sounds great. But there is no neutral ground. We are either, listen, we are either moving toward being more like Jesus or we are moving away. We're actively going in one of the two directions. So the question for us this morning is, man, am I actively trying to be more like Jesus or am I actively becoming less like him? Just think about this last week. Like which direction were we heading in? In our flesh, we don't trust the Father's heart and therefore we don't obey the Father's will. And so we insist on our own will, in our own way, and our own timing. So what do we do about this? Well, let's look at the fourth contrast. The way the world divides and it kills. And we are certainly seeing this play out in this chapter. But the way of Jesus is to gather and it's to give life. Welcome to the final day of the festival. If you've been reading this like me, you're going, man, how I don't walk in the way of Jesus at all. So what do I do? Like, what's the take home? What's the solution? Well, on the final day of the, of the festival here, Jesus gives them that day and us today a beautiful invitation. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, oh, oh, that's chapter 6. There we go. He says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, remembering this festival helps drive home the words that Jesus is speaking here. If you remember, the festival is celebrating a time when they were living in the desert. And they were living in tents in the desert. And what do you have in the desert? Not water, right? They were celebrating a fruitful harvest that only rain could bring. That water outside of, of them could offer. If we are spiritually thirsty, we come to the only one who can send the rain to the only one who can bear real, lasting fruit in our lives. And this gets so cool. The, the highlight of the festival was this water-drawing ceremony. So the priests would draw water from the Pool of Siloam. Remember, that was the pool where the healing would happen. So these were seen as waters of healing. So they took this golden flagon, which sounds like a cool thing to have. They took this golden flagon, and the high priest would dip it into the healing waters of the Pool of Siloam. And they would then march through the water gate, 
that's fitting, right? And no, Nixon wasn't a part of the train. Uh, and these three trumpet blasts would sound, and the people would just go nuts. And they would sing the Hallel, which was the Psalms 113 through Psalm 118 of our Bibles. They would sing these songs together. And the, the priests would lead this procession into the temple, and they would pour this water of healing onto the altar. And remember, the altar was the meeting place of God and, and man. And so this water symbolized the cleansing, the healing of our relationship with God so that we could be with him. And this ritual also pointed them forward to the biblical promise. And the Messiah would come. And in the Old Testament, we see this weird picture of water flowing out from the temple. And I want to, I want to, and, and, and with that in mind, think of Jesus' words here in verse 38. The one who believes in me, as the scripture says, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So there's this water flowing from without. And, and there was this picture in the Old Testament of, of these waters flowing from Jerusalem, specifically from the temple. And I want to look at a couple of these to press into what Jesus is saying here. First of all, in Zechariah 14. Zechariah prophesies on that day, the day the Messiah uh, arrives, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea, is symbolizing they're, they're on a high point, they're on a mountain, where the king would reign. And he says, in summer and winter alike, this water would continually flow. And then he says, on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his day, in his name alone. He says, there's a king coming who's going to reign from my holy mountain forever. He's just the Messiah. And what is that new kingdom going to look like? Ezekiel also talks to this in verse 47. It says, then he, uh, Ezekiel, brought me back to, or God brought Ezekiel back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing, again, from under the threshold of the temple. It's like a good flood that's happening in the temple. Toward the east, for the temple faced east. All kinds, and here's the result of that flowing river. All kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the rivers. The, their, the river, their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary, from the holy place, the temple. Their fruit will be used for eating and their leaves used for what? For healing. He says as the king reigns on his throne in this new mountain kingdom, the, the water of life will flow. And these trees will never fail to produce fruit. Fruit that brings what? Lasting healing. This is the, the Prince of Peace and the Shalom, the healing, the wholeness that he would bring to the world. That this is where it's all going. That King Jesus will reign in peace over us, over the whole earth forever. Like that's the end game. So how do we get there? What's, what's the path? Knowing our goal, knowing that's where it's going determines our way. That's why we follow Jesus today. So as we land the plane, let's think about how to walk this out, how to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. First of all, being with Jesus. Did you know our Father's heart for us is not just to live a moral life. It's to, it's to be with us. Like that's what he wants for you and with you. That was the problem, right? Sin separated us from God. And he wants to be with us. And that's why as Israel celebrates this festival in the desert where they're living in these tents, the fulfilling, this pointed us to a picture where God himself would put on flesh and he would tabernacle among us. 
that our God pitched his tent in our spiritual desert so that we could be with him. Our God pursued us when we did not pursue our God. And Jesus, just like those healing waters of Siloam, he cleanses us. He heals us. He makes us whole. Peace. Shalom with God. Why? So that on the altar of our lives, we can meet with our God. And so before we ever try to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did, we must first learn to be with Jesus. I want to ask you, are you learning what it is to be with Jesus in relationship? There is one thing that I want for you. There's one thing I could beseech you into, implore you into, is to learn what it means to be with your Savior. Because if our Christ, if he's not filling our cup, we have nothing to offer the world. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The starting point is to be with Jesus. And secondly, we are to become like Jesus. So have you ever been super thirsty? Like I remember when I used to practice uh, in high school, we'd be at basketball practice, and I thought, man, when this practice is over, I'm never going to stop drinking ice water again. Like, forever, right? And what happens when we get thirsty? We don't take a bath, right? We drink water, right? The, th- the, the thirst is on the inside, and we got to get water into us, not just onto us. And Jesus says here in verse 38 that waters will flow from deep within. You see, he reveals this water analogy and what it's pointing to. Look at verse 39. Put it up there. Verse 39. He says, he said this about the water flowing from without. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit, but the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He's going to teach later. When I go, I'm going to send the spirit. My very spirit will dwell within. Now, where did it say this spirit would flow from? Well, the water was flowing from the temple. And brothers and sisters, we now are the temple of God. The spirit, his living water, flows from within us. And this is where we often reverse the gospel. That often we say, well, we got to take a bath first and then come to Jesus. That we got to cleanse ourselves outwardly so that he will accept us. But that's not what Jesus taught. We come to him as we are, thirsty. And then he indwells us, and now that we are united with him, with Christ in us, his spirit can transform us from the inside out. We don't change outward in, we change inward out. And that's how we'll truly start to look like Jesus, which leads us to our third point, to learn to do what Jesus did. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we actually doing what Jesus said? Are we obeying his word? And we know a lot of us have hang-ups from legalistic teaching that we have to do good things to make God love us and accept us. It's not what we're talking about here. But if Jesus Christ is in me, he will eventually flow out of me. And, And just like physical water quenches my thirst. Why? So that my body can now do the things it was intended to do. That Jesus quenches our thirst so we can now live in his way. That his spirit flows out of us in this new life as we begin to learn all the ways that we just saw in John 7. It's the spirit in us that enables us to wait on the Father's perfect timing and not be impatient. It's the spirit in us that that teaches us to not manipulate God, but to trust him and follow him. It's the spirit in us that gives us the boldness to step out of the shadows into the light and confess our sin and, and cling to our Savior and be willing to say hard things even when it costs 
That, that it's, it's the spirit in us, flowing out of us, that enables us to trust our Father's heart and then to walk in our Father's way, to heal us, to bring us wholeness. That's why we used to sing the song, I got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Open prisoner doors, let the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Goosh, 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 you know the song. If you're not from the 90s, that was a weird trip for you, but <laughs> let's pray before I get in trouble. Father, we, we, we without you are in a desert. We thirst. And we try to make up our own goals and then therefore our own paths to get to those goals. So Father, I repent of following the wrong ways and looking to the wrong ends. Of trying to manipulate you of, of my impatience in my life. My lack of trust in you. My lack of obedience in you. But Father, there is a wonderful merciful Savior who tabernacled amongst us in our desert, died in our place, and as the water gushed forward from his side, he created a way that your Spirit's living waters could flow from us. So Father, I, I pray this morning, wherever, whoever, everybody in this room is in different places, that each of us would turn our eyes to Jesus and that through him, and his, his spirit in us, that you would enable us to trust your heart, to obey your word. And that as we spend time with our wonderful, merciful Savior, that we, by his spirit in us, will start to become like him, bearing his fruit, love and joy, peace and patience. And start doing the things he does in the ways that we treat our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. Show the world who Jesus is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, we thirst, but Jesus quenches. We were broken, but he made us whole. Father, it's in the name of the living waters, Jesus Christ himself, that all God's people said.